Well, good evening. Welcome to First Methodist Mansfield. My name is Johnny Brower. If we haven't already met, so good to be in church today. I serve as one of your pastors here at First Methodist Mansfield, and I just love being in worship together. What a powerful time uh, that we had in song, uh, preparing our hearts for this time to to hear from God's word and, and, and kind of prepare, expose our souls a little bit to what God's going to do and what God's going to speak to us tonight. If you brought your Bible with you, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 25. That's in the New Testament. The first gospel there is Matthew chapter 25. Comes after chapter 24. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you today, there are some Bibles available underneath the seat in front of you there, a little blue Bible. Uh, and if you're going to be using that Bible, we have the page number available for you on the screen up there. So while you're locating that scripture, I want to share with you two things, things that you already heard uh, in the video announcement. I just want to echo those a little bit. By now, I, I assume you have heard about this conference, uh, the Good and Beautiful Conference. I think we've mentioned it a few times, and it's almost here. We're one week away. I'm so very excited, and I, I, want, to, uh, I want to echo. That's the second time I've said that, and the sermon has just started. Uh, what Pastor Sharon, what Pastor David have already, already said, that the, the teaching of James Bryan Smith through the book The Good and Beautiful God and the, and the other books in that series have been so transformative for me, profoundly affected uh, my faith walk. And, and I know that you will be blessed uh, by his teaching and his team that are going to be here um, to spend some time with us. Pastor David shared with us last week that we are heading in this church, we are heading into a fall season that is ripe with life-changing opportunity here at our church. And I believe that this is one of those moments, one of those big milestone moments in the fall um, that, is, that is part of that, uh, one of those life-changing opportunities. So if you haven't signed up, I implore you, please, please do. And we can help you with that just outside here when we're done. The other thing is this, that we've been talking about a, a message series that follows that conference called A Deeper Life with God. And in connection with this series, you've seen that we have developed uh, a series of, of video teachings and, and a workbook that will not only help us to grow individually in a deeper life with God, but also to grow together as a church family uh, in groups. So I want to show you a quick behind-the-scenes video. We'll give you kind of a glimpse into the work that went into making this resource uh, and, and some encouragement from some of the people that were a part of putting that together. So I'm going to show you that now. Over the past couple days, it's been really neat to be a part of the, the shooting of this series, to see Pastor David on camera, to see the set and the lights, uh, to see 30, 40 people coming in to shoot interviews and testimonies. Uh, it's just going to be a, a neat opportunity for us to not only study together, to learn together, to grow together, but also to see each other, um, helping each other grow. Being a part of a small group for so long now, uh, I know that this is going to be uh, a huge jump for the church to get more small groups involved and really impact people's lives in, in a community of faith that really brings you in. It's been really exciting to be here on the set as we're filming A Deeper Life with God. Uh, hearing people's stories, anticipating what it's going to be like when we all get to see this together and learn. I know that a lot of exciting things have been happening right here as we've been filming. I can't wait to share it with you. Uh, we're just really proud of Pastor David's teaching. We've benefited it from it uh, in our community for years, and uh, we are really happy to share these teachings about presence, about generosity, about sacrifice, about community, things that have defined our life together. We are so happy to now share those with a broader audience. I can't tell you how excited I am and we are about a, a new opportunity for all of us. 
in our small groups, our classes, our connections, to be able to have this great curriculum, what deeper life with God. And we might be able to do that and, and, and do that in a community, do that in sharing together and doing that in uh, discussions and prayer and also this, this video teaching curriculum that's going to help us do that. A lot of work's gone into it. We believe it'll change your life and my life and our life together. We're excited about it. I hope you will make sure you're involved in one way or the other in the season we're about to step into. Our hope is that through this, steer, this series coming up and, and this study that you start to start or maybe even continue on uh, your journey to a deeper life with God and discover the fullness of God's presence in your life. And we hope that you'll do it together. That's why we've been pushing everybody to a group, because we believe that uh, we grow deeper in relationship with God when we do that together, when we grow together. Uh, so if you're not already part of a Sunday school group or a uh, small group, uh, now's the time. We can help you get connected with that. We have books available out there. If you haven't purchased yours yet, they're $10. Um, very, very easy to get. Uh, and there will also be somebody out there to help you get connected to a group as well. Today, as we continue on in our series called Revival, this is week four. Uh, of this series. Uh, and this series is sort of a primer for all this that's going to be happening in the fall, something that's getting us charged up and ready, that's really opening our eyes uh, to the revival that's happening within our own church and the revival that is needed in our country uh, when it comes to our churches. Uh, so when we hear the word revival, the first thing I think of is an event, right? Maybe some of you attended a revival uh, when you were younger or maybe not too long ago, uh, but we don't really want to talk about an event, we want to talk about a movement. A revival as a movement, as a process, a, a movement of revitalization or re-energization or maybe even resurrection, uh, if you will. Uh, we live in a time when the church is increasingly seen as irrelevant in our culture. But I firmly believe, and we as a church firmly believe, that God's church is the hope of the world. That we carry a gospel message that this world desperately needs. And revival is reclaiming that, that authority that the church once had and its responsibility to the world. It's inviting God's spirit to move in us and to remove that which distracts us and reignite our passion and our effectiveness in spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. What we're looking at in this series is, is this idea that we believe we are living in the time when the church desperately needs a revival. And I, I use church as the little C church, which means the universal, the church in need of revival. And the focus for us is to think through what that might mean for us as a faith family here at First Methodist Mansfield. A couple things I want to remind you of as we've gone through this series. We've been through three weeks so far. Week one, uh, Pastor David told us that revival always begins with God. This is where we start. It begins when we acknowledge our need of God. Revival doesn't happen when we work harder or we get smarter, but it begins when we acknowledge that we need God to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. Week two uh, and three, we focused on this idea of personal holiness. We focused on this idea that personal change precedes world change. And the past two weeks have really been about digging deep into what that means uh, for us, that God brings change and transformation in the world through the lives of changed and transformed people. I'm going to say that again because that's really good. God brings change and transformation into the world through the lives of changed and transformed people. 
Pastor David talked about sanctifying grace uh, and understanding that John Wesley had about the changed life. There are three types of grace. If you missed it, you can go back and listen to it. Prevenient grace, the grace that comes before. Justifying grace, that moment when we claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And then sanctifying grace. Sanctifying grace, it's, uh, it's an understanding that salvation wasn't just that singular moment, but a refining of the self that is done uh, in, in concert or in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. So if you've missed any of these, I want you to check out our website and find them. Uh, you can see our, uh, our podcast on iTunes and, and, and catch up. So this week, we're going to look at the other side of that coin, right? Personal uh, change precedes world change. But now we're going to talk about that world change. Because faith in God is not simply an individual endeavor, the goal of our relationship with God is not simply to clean ourselves up and make us look presentable when we uh, get ourselves to the pearly gates, right, in the, in the sweet by and by, that um, our faith and our Christian life actually has a much bigger and grander purpose than that. I want to start by uh, telling you this week has been a, a week of celebration, right? Uh, college football is back. Go Frogs. They won on Thursday. Um, you heard about uh, my wife's birthday today, most importantly, right? Um, her birthday was today. We've been celebrating her. And then uh, last week uh, was my son's birthday, uh, Charlie, who turned five. And I, I got to tell you, I love being the dad of a, of a little boy, right? Because as you grow up, all those things that you loved as a little boy that you still kind of love as an adult, that it's kind of weird for like me to go and buy all those kids' toys that I love so much, right? And, you know, I'll freely admit my love of Star Wars, but that's about the line, right? Like, you, you can't do all those things, but when you have a little boy, like, you get to do all those things again, right? And his birthday came, and he was opening the presents. He had a wonderful time, and, and so many of the presents that he opened, he opened up some Star Wars Legos, right? Several boxes of Star Wars Legos. His eyes were so big. His smile got so big, and it was basically just mirroring my face. Eyes got real big. Smile got real big, like, oh, yes, we got some Legos, <laughs> right? We got Legos, and I just could I mean, the, the first day when he said, hey, Dad, can you help me build these Legos? Oh, my gosh, my heart melted like it was just the best moment of my life and we sit up at the at the dining room table we clear everything out of the way we got to have our workspace and we get that box and we open it up and, and I'm explaining to him you know how responsible we got to be when we open this box up and we get the pieces out and we put them in piles right and I'm walking through with him and I'm I mean let me tell you the restraint that it takes for me to help my son my five-year-old son build these Legos right instead of me just going like hold on let daddy do it first now see how cool that is, right? That I have to sit back, right? And I, I teach him how to, uh, to open the bags and how to read the instructions. The instructions look like, the, like if you're bu building Ikea furniture or something, right? It's just pictures and they're like arrows pointing at stuff. And, you know, show them that the, well, we look at the picture and we find the pieces, right? We bring the right pieces in and we put them like the pictures. You know, it was just such a wonderful time. But then, then something happened. We finished building it. And then he wanted to play with it. <laughs> now, I don't know if you've seen the Lego movie. I'm a lot like the dad in the Lego movie, right? Like, Legos are not toys. Like, <laughs> these, are, these are complex building units that we build these structures and these pieces of art, right, that we look at. We don't play with them, right? Because you might hurt it. You might break it. You might lose a piece. We could never play with it again if you lose a piece, right? We could never build it again. You build it, and that's the fun. And then you just don't touch it again. I fought that, man. I, inside, I really wanted to say, Charlie, these are not for playing with, right? These are for looking at. 
you marvel at your accomplishment. You show it off, right? Like, Mom, come look at what I built, right? You want to show it off, but don't mess it up. Now, some of you in this room I know cannot resonate with that, right? Like, you don't get that. Like, you, you never played with Legos. You don't get Legos. But maybe you can resonate with this, right? Has anybody in here ever cleaned a bathroom before? <laughs> what happens as soon as you're done cleaning that bathroom, right? Somebody's got to go to the bathroom. And you don't want them to use that bathroom. I just cleaned the thing. Look how pretty it looks. And now you're going to go in there and just foul it all up, right? Like, what happens if a guest comes over? Like, they're going to see this bathroom. I want it to look pretty, right? Or maybe if you, uh, if you have carpet in your home, right, and you vacuum that carpet, and you see those pretty little lines in the carpet, and it's all fluffed up, and then here come people wanting to walk all over that. Why would you want to walk on this carpet? Look at the pretty lines on it. What good is carpet, guys, if, you're, if you can't feel your toes in the carpet? But you don't want to mess it up because it looks all good now. You worked hard. It looks good. I bought these shoes a while back. They're white. <laughs> I don't want to mess these things up, right? Like you go outside and the first time like you step by somebody and they kind of kick against your shoe like some dirt gets on it. You're like, what are you doing? These shoes, like they're white. Don't get them dirty. Right? The function of a shoe is to keep my feet from getting dirty, right? To protect my feet from the ground. But, you know, we can get shoes sometimes and we're like, I don't want to get the shoe dirty. I need a shoe for my shoe. The shoe looks so good. I don't, want to, I don't want it to get dirty. I don't want to actually have the shoe function as it's supposed to function because I'm afraid of messing it up, right? I'm not a car guy, so I'm probably going to offend a few people in this room. But cars, right? I, I've seen people that do this beautiful work, finding it just a piece of junk, right? And they work hard on it, and they, and they restore it to its, this beauty, right? And, you, and you're like, oh, look at that beautiful car. When are we going for a drive? I'm like, drive. We don't drive this thing. I don't want the sun to touch this thing, right? Like, look how beautiful this car is. We don't drive it. We look at it. Right? I don't get that, but you can write me an email later if, if I offend you to do. But, you know, like the function of a car, the purpose of a car is to get you from here to there. And, you know, if you want a car to look nice and you want to polish it up and make it look good, you know, that's fine too, but it still has to function, right? Like it has to get you from here. You get what I'm saying, right? Here's, here's what I'm getting at. We've been talking about personal holiness and how important that is and how it is the precursor to world change. But in the process of caring for our souls, of strengthening our faith, if we lose sight of our purpose, if we lose sight of our purpose, then what's the point? When we start working on ourselves, but we don't want to get our souls dirty or, or, or hurt, we don't want to expose it to the world, we don't, we don't want to take it out of the box, right? We want, to, we want to work on it, we want to build it up, we want to clean it up, and then we want to set it there for everybody to see, but we don't actually want to use it. We get so focused on the improvement, right, we, that it, our soul never actually leaves the garage. Uh, just so happens that Jesus has a thing or two to say about this, right? And, and this is kind of a trap that we get into in the church and as Christians. And it, I mean, it, it just happens. This is, this is part of who we are is that we get really focused on the really important work that has to take place inside of each and every one of us. But we can fall into a trap right, of going into this cycle of only working on ourselves and thinking that the Christian life is all about working on us and it has nothing to do with the outside world because they should just be working on themselves, right? I'm working on me, you work on you. So we're going to look at this uh, for the remainder of the message. We're going to, we're going to do a little Bible study together. Um, this is kind of, this is a scripture, it's a rather long passage in Matthew chapter 25. It's, uh, it's a, it's a, 
Uh, it's Jesus' teaching, one of his last teachings. And, and what we're going to do is kind of how I read this, right? We'll read it, break it up into sections, make a few observations, and then really try to pull it together in this truth that, that we're trying to learn today about uh, what it means to, to spark revival within our own congregation, but also in the world, and reclaiming, reclaiming the purpose of the church and seeing how our personal holiness, how our personal holiness then translates into world change, right? You with me? All right, chapter 25 of Matthew. Uh, we're going to be starting in verse 31. Before we get started, just a little bit of context. If you go a few chapters back into chapter 21, right, Jesus triumphantly enters Jerusalem, right? This is, he's entering into the Mecca, right? This is where people go to worship. This is where the temple is, right? This is a hustle and bustle. It's the big city. This is the big time, right? Jesus has been doing his ministry all kind of around Jerusalem, but he is now triumphantly entering Jerusalem, and people have been looking forward to this moment because he is going to come in, right? He's the Savior, the Messiah, and he's going to overthrow the Romans, and he's going to throw out the corrupt religious leaders, and he's going to establish this new kingdom on earth right then and there. This is what the expectation is, and this is what he's doing, but Jesus knows as he's entering Jerusalem, that he's entering a hornet's nest, right? Jesus knows that the message that he is going to bring, that he is going to teach in Jerusalem, isn't going to go over well with sort of the power establishment there, right? With the Roman leaders and with the religious leaders there. Because Jesus, where Jesus goes, he kind of stirs up trouble, right? That's what happens. Uh, when Jesus shows up. And so this, Jesus knows this, right? The disciples don't necessarily know this. The people that are in Jerusalem don't necessarily know this, but Jesus knows. Jesus knows that he's walking in trouble and he's probably not going to walk out alive. So the vast majority of his teaching from this point on is eschatological in nature. Ooh, eschatological is a fancy like seminary word that means kind of the end times, right? Jesus is talking about the end, the culmination, what's going to happen later on. Right? Like, what, what is all of this about? Right? So this is what he's sort of teaching on because he knows this is it. And this teaching right here, the teaching on the sheep and the goats, which we're about to read, is his last discourse. Right? It's his last extended teaching. Right after this moment, uh, he has the supper where he's anointed with oil by the woman. I don't know if you've read this in the Bible where she comes and breaks the perfume on his feet, right, and, and washes his feet. Then he has a last supper with his disciples, and then he's arrested, and later crucified. So this is his last teaching. It, it spans a couple chapters uh, here in Matthew. And it starts here in 31, this last portion. When the Son of Man, this is Jesus talking, right? And he's talking of himself. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Hello, sheep. Hello, goats. Uh, he'll have the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Let's pause there for a minute. Now, now Jesus, right before this, is, t is teaching in parables, as Jesus often does. Like, he makes up this story, right, and it's got some meaning inside of it. This is more like a metaphor. This isn't really a story. Jesus is teaching in metaphor uh, now And it's a scene, uh, a metaphor that would be very familiar to the people in those days, right? Uh, people know what a shepherd is, and they know what it's like to have sheep and goats. And they know that sheep and goats graze together. But at the end of the day, you have to separate the two, right? Because the sheep are equipped to handle the cold nights. They can stay out on their own, but you have to bring the goats inside because they're not equipped to handle the cold night, right? 
sheep got a lot of wool on them and goats don't. So they know this and they know that, they know that sheep and goats uh, graze together and when they do, they look similar. Like if you're looking from the hillside at a herd of sheep and goats, they all kind of look similar. So to, to separate them, you actually have to move within them, right? You move within them and, and separate them out. This is a moment of judgment that Jesus is talking about, a moment of differentiation, there's a moment the king is on his throne and all the nations are before him, right? And then he breaks them up into two groups. This is a judgment, a differentiation. And Jesus in this, in this here, this is another thing that's really easy to miss. Jesus here is addressing his disciples, right? We often mistake passages like this or, you know, some passages for Jesus to be talking to a much broader audience, right? Like he's standing on a hillside and there's hundreds of people there and he's teaching to all of them. But Jesus here is on the Mount of Olives with just his disciples and he's teaching to them very specifically, right? So that's important to know uh, that this, that this uh, material, this content that Jesus is teaching is at a very targeted group, right? Disciples. Let's move on. Uh, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply then, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This brings us for our, our first, first truth uh, for tonight, and it's this. We serve Jesus when we serve one another. We serve Jesus when we serve one another. That's pretty simple truth to, to glean from this passage. But here's, here's really what that means. What that means is that we have to see one another in a radically different way. Right? Like serving other people, that means you have to see them in a radically different way if you're going to serve them like Jesus is talking about here. And this includes people that we'd otherwise not see, otherwise not be around. I want to give you a few examples of this, and, and I know them just from right here in this church. Um, there's a, a, an incredible ministry called uh, Kairos, right? And this Kairos ministry, year after year, they, they, uh, there's a group of, of men and women that, that do this, and they go into prisons. Uh, they, they bring cookies. They, they lead in worship. Uh, but more importantly than that, they spend time with people there. They spend time with the inmates. Uh, they, they get to know them. They, they hear their stories. They invest in them. They are present with them in a very real way. People that we have locked away, right? We have locked away behind walls. We have swept them into the corner or under the rug to, to keep them quarantined away from us, to, to, to forget about them, right? They're in there and we're out here and we're just going to keep on with our lives and y'all just stay in there, right? Easy to forget about them. It's easy for us to even assume things about people that are in prison, right? That they're not worthy of love, not worthy of grace because they deserve to be in there and, and, and they, they messed up their life out here. And so they, but instead... When we, when we see them radically different, when we see them as Jesus sees them, as beloved children of God, just like this Kairos ministry does and goes in, it changes 
right? It changes the people that are doing the ministry and it's changing those that are being ministered to because of what it says about them. It says that I see Jesus in you. When I spend time with you, when I feed you, when I listen to you, right, I'm spending time with Jesus. I'm listening to Jesus. I'm caring for Jesus. There's another ministry called uh, Feed by Grace that happens. Uh, our church does it once a month on Saturdays. There's a group of people who come together. It's really easy. You just kind of show up. Um, and we go over to Fort Worth Unity Park. And the homeless community there gathers. And we feed the community there. You cook lunch and you feed. And it's very important, right? Meeting actual physical needs is very, very important. But more than that, you spend time. Every time I get to go, I love to play basketball with people there, right? I'm really terrible at basketball, but I love to just go out and play basketball because it's a way to not only, you know, have fun together, but a way to strike up conversations, right? There are people that go out there and sit and eat meals together and hear stories to learn about a depth of life that you didn't know existed, a people that are so easily swept away into the corners of, of, of Fort Worth, right, where we don't want to see them, we don't have to deal with them, right? We make assumptions about why they're homeless, but, but when you sit and you look across the table at somebody that's human just like you're human, that bleeds just like you bleed, right, that God loves them just like God loves you, Something happens there. Something very human and something very spiritual. If you are a middle school small group leader, <laughs> if you're a middle school small group leader, I see these every week on, on, on Wednesday nights, right? And, and, and some people do it on Sunday mornings. It's very easy to, to consider, you know, a middle school boy just, you know, doesn't like to listen, bounce off the walls, you know, to sit down and spend time with a middle school boy whose hormones are raging, who's, you know, who has outgrown their body, who, whose voice cracks every two minutes, right, and, and they can't stay focused, and to teach them about Jesus, and that Jesus loves them, and that they matter, and their lives are matter, to spend time investing in them and growing them up to, to be a man or woman of God. What an amazing investment to somebody who could just, we could assume nothing of, right? We could expect nothing of. This happens all over our church all the time. We serve Jesus when we serve one another. But this means that we have to see one another in a radically new way. Let's keep going. Verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Very strong language here from Jesus. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? And he will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Really strong language. Jesus is not mixing his words here. He may be speaking a metaphor, but he is very clear about what he is communicating. But there's a clear line of demarcation, right? And there's something that defines those that are righteous and those that are unrighteous. What I really love about this passage is if you notice how both groups seem surprised. Did you notice that? How both groups seem surprised at, at Jesus' judgment. 
Because I wonder if those that are spending that time uh, serving, and they may not be as, as righteous as the, as the people that look righteous and sound righteous, right? And they didn't expect that they were righteous enough. It, Jesus says, no, it is you who are righteous. And those that spent a, a lot of time telling everybody how righteous they were, and they practiced their, their Christian language or their God language, and they, you know, they did all the right things, said all the right things, dressed all the right ways, but didn't serve, right? And they're surprised. Wait a minute. I never missed a Sunday of church. I did all the right Bible studies. I said all the right things. I thought serving was like extra credit, right? I thought that like whenever I do all the right things, that like if I feel like it, right, then I could get extra credit by serving other people. I didn't know that that was a requirement, God. Why didn't you state that in the beginning? Jesus is bearing very clear. I wonder if when Jesus began this story, right, in this, this fictitious group of people, if they already had some assumptions about who were the sheep and who were the goats. I wonder if that exists today in real life, or there are assumptions about what the life of faith should look like, what righteousness looks like, what God will expect during that time of judgment about what righteousness is. I wanted to spend a lot more time uh, going in, into another section uh, that we just do not have the time for. So for extra credit, you can go to the book of James, right? Uh, you go to the book of James, uh, chapter 2. There's an there's a extended teaching there, 14 through 26. Uh, pretty well-known passage in Scripture. You can look through that. But I'll just share with you the book in verses, verse 14 and verse 26. In the, the book of James, it says this, What good is it if one claims to have faith but has no deeds? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Here's what we're getting at. Our holiness is not whole without both personal holiness and social holiness. Personal holiness and social holiness. We often read that verse in James as if the personal holiness part is not important, right? It's just as long as you're doing the right things, right? But really, the the deeds do not replace our faith. They complete our faith. Another way of saying this is this, and you'll see this slide up there. A growing love of God should always lead to a growing love of others, right? They work together. It's two sides of the same coin, that as we grow in love with God, that we grow in love of others, that our faith and our deeds are not two separate things, right? Our faith and our deeds are not two separate things, but as we grow in faith, we grow in our service to the world, And remember who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to his disciples. What he's afraid of is is when he leaves, because he knows it's going to happen, when he is gone, when he departs from his disciples, and they are on their own with all that he has bestowed upon them in wisdom, right? He doesn't want them to fall into that trap, right, that he's seen the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other religious leaders fall into, where it's more about being correct, right? He doesn't want them to fall into that trap. And I think that we are susceptible to that same trap today, that there's this false sense that, if, uh, that knowing the right truth, right, that believing the right thing or using the right Christian-sounding words makes us righteous, that we strive to be correct. Spend some time on Facebook, and you'll find that out real quick, that we strive to be correct. Rather, rather, there should be a transformation of our mind and soul that leads us not to seclude ourselves or escape the world but to a renewed sense of what the world means to God and to begin to pour out of ourselves the grace that was so freely and undeservedly poured into us. The mark of the Christian life 
There's a growing love of God that transforms into a growing love of others. David's been sharing with you um, a little about John Wesley in each of his sermons. If you don't know John Wesley, 18th century, uh, he was part of this movement that happened kind of globally that we call the Great Awakening. Uh, But in his movement, he was very methodical in the way he approached his faith. And he began this movement that became the Methodist movement. Now, John Wesley was an Anglican priest, right? Uh, He didn't seek to start this new denomination, but it just kind of happened, right? Because John Wesley wanted revival in the church. He felt the church was dead and he needed to breathe new life into it to really get in, in touch with God's Holy Spirit and what the Spirit wanted to do in the world. And by most people's standards, John Wesley's life would have seemed to be a remarkable success. His early career as an Anglican priest was a little shaky and a little troubled. But by the time he turned 35, uh, John Wesley had turned his life and his ministry around by the grace of God. He had begun a movement that had grown so dramatically uh, throughout Britain and, and and the American colony It spread throughout America. It actually became the largest uh, church in the new nation at that time. He was one of the most widely published authors of his day. And he was an outspoken and respected critic of slavery, war, and economic policies that he believed to cause poverty. He had great influence. He was a well-educated man. And when he was 86 years old, less than two years before his death, John Wesley completed a a sermon that he was writing while he was in Ireland that he was preparing to give. Now this sermon that John Wesley wrote uh, when he was an old man was contemplating the significance of his life work and he was actually quite discouraged. This is a window into, into some of his deepest beliefs about what his purpose was and what the church's purpose was. For John Wesley, the measure of the success of a minister like himself, of a church, of a spiritual movement, of his own dearly beloved Methodism that he had watched grown from infancy, wasn't the number of members that joined that church or the quantity or the size of the buildings that that church owned or the size of its budget or its status in society or influence over culture. The measure of Methodism's success was whether the world was a better place whether the world was a more just place, whether the world was a more compassionate place, this was the measure of success of himself and of the church. That's who John Wesley was. He cared deeply about a person's individual spiritual life and the growth that, that needed to happen there, and he cared deeply about making this world a better place through the work of God's people. Some of the things that he was highly involved with in his day, which were revolutionary at the time. No church was doing this. No organization or group was doing this. He was involved in prison ministries where he would go in and minister the people in prisons. Sound familiar? He was dedicated to eliminating poverty. He would often go and buy up tons of medicine and hand it out to those that could not afford that medicine out of his home until he ran out. He was dedicated his life to fighting slavery, championing education, He thought education was so important. He wanted everybody to have an education. And that same spirit of John Wesley and and the early Methodists still lives in our DNA here, I believe, at First Methodist Mansfield. So when we talk about revival, when we talk about the church regaining its influence in the world, it's not going to be by choosing the right political ideology 
It's not going to be more correct than the others about our, uh, our morality. It's not going to be by building walls to keep some out and only letting a few in. Revival is going to happen in, in our world, in the church around the world. When we remember that the teaching of Scripture, that the teaching of Jesus says that righteousness is about loving one another. That's where revival is going to be. Here's what I hope that this message reveals to you today. that The things that we do in this church at First Methodist, this is why we do them. This is why we do the things we do. Why we gather here for worship. Why we gather in small groups. Why we labor over our spiritual practices. Part of sanctifying ourselves. Growing in deeper love with God. Refining our souls. Being in tune with the Spirit. And it's why we dedicate so much of our time and our resources, our people, our volunteers, our budget to the transformation of the world. To investing heavily in our community. In the dark places where people are easily forgotten. To places around the globe that are in desperate need of caring people. We do it because we love Jesus. We love the people that Jesus loves. Let's pray. God, we come to you tonight thanking you for your grace that is so freely provided for every one of us. We thank you for your presence in this place as we have sung songs to your glory, God. We've heard from your scriptures. We pray that your spirit moves in us. Forgive us for not always living into the vision of your church, God. For not always hearing the cry of the needy. For not always loving our neighbor as ourselves. Open our eyes, God, to see those that are in need. Help us to see you in them. Lead us into the forgotten and dark places. And as we grow more and more in love with you day by day, God, may we grow in love of others. May your spirit reignite us, revive us, God that we here as part of this church can set the example in the world for what it means to be the body of Christ in your world. In your name we pray. Amen.